It is most fitting that we gather as the body of Christ on this Lord's Day to proclaim Jesus Christ is risen. Everything hinges on this reality. For those of us who have trusted Christ as Savior, our lives have been transformed by the resurrection of Christ. From now on, every moment of our lives is baptized in this reality. Our eternal hope is tethered to Christ's victory over the grave. As Romans 8 reveals, even the destiny of the universe is tethered to the cosmic implications of Christ's resurrection from the dead. I think it would be good for us to confess together, however, as we gather here to proclaim Christ's resurrection, how little we fully perceive the implications of His resurrection upon our daily lives. We remain blinded to this history-altering, spiritually transforming, cosmic reality of Jesus' victory over death. To some degree, it is veiled from our perception. And that's one reason that we gather week after week on the Lord's Day to remind ourselves of the life-changing implications of Christ's resurrection of how profound it is and how meaningful it is to us as believers. And by God's grace, this weekly recognition always coming together week after week to remember that Christ is risen, combined with our growth in God's Word, by His grace it will combine to deepen our understanding of what it means to be united with the resurrection of Christ. One of the most tangible evidences of the transforming power of Christ's resurrection in our daily lives is the effect upon our response to the death of believers. The cruel enemy of death stalks our world. There's nothing any of us can do to escape the grief of losing a loved one to death, including members of our church. The bitterest tears I think I've shed in this waking world have fallen in response to the death of members of this flock. We know this grief all too well as an assembly. The church at Thessalonica knew this grief as well. As you make your way to the fourth chapter here, we come to close out this chapter today. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, we find here a grieving church. We do not know the details, but we know only that some of the church members had died and that the church was filled with sorrow by these events. We also cannot know precisely what they were thinking, but as the Apostle Paul shepherds this church, he realizes that there's something lacking in their faith. They're missing some pieces in their theology And he detects this critical weakness concerning their understanding of the implications of the resurrection of Christ in their daily walk, and particularly in this area of their struggle with grief. And so with tender watch care, Paul seeks to instruct them and thereby to encourage their broken hearts with hope. And as he does this, we witness again how the resurrection of Jesus transforms everything, especially grief. He writes in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Who are those that are asleep? Hopefully it's not the person sitting next to you. That's not the person that's asleep. 
But here it's a reference to those who have died. Figure of speech to believers here who have died. On, the re- on their reading of this passage, Seventh-day Adventists claim that the soul of the dead person remains unconscious between death and resurrection. But the Bible repeatedly speaks of the conscious existence of those who are in the intermediate state between death and resurrection. But when your spirit leaves your body in death, and that's what death is, it's not ceasing to exist, it's not falling asleep in unconsciousness, but the spirit leaves the body, at that point you enter eternity fully conscious of who you are. But for the believer, death is not judgment. Death can be described as sleep. And the word was used commonly even in the pagan culture of sleep. But that's the idea here, that these people have fallen asleep in Christ. They have died in Christ. Now again, for reasons not entirely discernible to us, the Thessalonians were uninformed about the destiny of deceased believers. And their ignorance was fueling a kind of grief that characterizes people who do not know the risen Christ. They are grieving as others who have no hope. Now, I think Paul's being very gentle here, and he's saying, I don't want you to grieve this way. I don't want you to grieve as those who do not have hope. But apparently there's a temptation there. This is their struggle. There's many ways of grieving in this world. Many people grieve without hope. And the death of a loved one results in debilitating depression. I've observed as it's led to drugs and to alcohol, to escape, to get away. There's no way to deal with this sorrow and this heartache. There's others who take the macho response, I'm too tough to cry. I remember in a, working in a hospital one time as a man had seen the, observed the death of his wife there in the hospital and he just was struggling so hard to not let one tear leave his eyes. And I said something that probably wasn't very smart, but I said, it's okay to cry. He just about punched me. It, his, it, fighting that emotion turned to anger against me. There's some people that respond that way as if it's wrong to grieve. Then there are some Christians, I don't know that they're any further ahead really, and that's, there's no place for grief in the loss of a loved one because we know that person is with the Lord. And so any tears on our part are evidence of self-pity and self-centeredness. And we should not respond this way. I think such responses and this response by Christians is just as wrong as those by unbelievers. Both are unchristlike. Jesus at the funeral of Lazarus wept. John 11, verse 35. Had Epaphroditus died of that illness that he was suffering with Paul, Paul said, had this man died, I would have had sorrow upon sorrow. Philippians 2.27 Great lamentation was made for Stephen when he was martyred in Acts 8 and verse 2. Genuine grief in the face of death is not an evidence of self-centeredness necessarily. There's nothing evil about it. It may in fact be a genuine expression of love, of humility, of compassion. It's an honest coming to grips with the reality that we have lost someone that we love here. We're not pretending otherwise. Read the book of Lamentations. 
read of Jeremiah the weeping prophet. These are different reasons. But in Lamentations, as he looks at the death of many in Jerusalem, it's not wrong to grieve. It's not wrong to cry. But in a world in which Christ has defeated death, we do not grieve without hope. That's the difference. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. In my service to our city as a police chaplain, I had the trial this week of sitting in a garage with a young man who had been working with his father in painting a house. He was there at the bottom of the ladder that his father ascended. And through a series of events, he fell from that ladder and died. This young man working with his dad and watches and observes as his father dies. The grief that young man was suffering as I sat with him was horrifying. You could feel it. But what made it so painful to watch is there was no evidence of hope. I had no words to give. I had no way to convey to this young man any hope because there was no evidence there was any. In the face of the excruciating pain of losing a loved one, there is a grief without hope and there is a grief with hope and the two are radically different. The grief of believers is transformed by their theology. Verse 14, as Paul continues, I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Where is the hope resting? The hope is resting in Jesus died and rose again. For since we believe the basis of our hope-filled grief is the Gospel, it is trust in what Christ has done because He rose from the dead on the force of our union with the risen Christ. His triumph over death becomes our triumph over death. And thus we are assured that God will bring the dead with Him. Now what does that mean? Here we have God teaching us how we should respond and how we should understand death. But what does it mean that He'll bring the dead with Him? It does mean, certainly, that God will resurrect the dead in Christ and bring them to heaven with Him. Some have suggested it may mean more than that. It may mean that He's bringing them with Him on His way to earth, not on His way away from earth. In other words, He will bring those who have died He will bring their spirit with Him when Christ returns to be united with their body on earth. Here's what I mean, Paul says, verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. No evidence in how he's received this word, probably through direct revelation. The point is that what I've got to say now comes on the authority of Christ. Listen to this. Verse 15. We who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We need to understand, for some of you this is new, you're working your way into this, but we need to understand that the Bible talks about last things, about the end times. And the crucial element in end times is that Jesus Christ will come back. 
Paul does not discuss at this point when Christ will return. He does not discuss the relationship of Jesus' return to two other crucial aspects. The Great Tribulation and the Millennium. There will be a period of Great Tribulation, assigned a time period of seven years, and there will be a Millennium, a 1,000 year period. Many would take that figuratively, but I think we can take it literally. These two ideas and the return of Christ, how does it all relate? Paul doesn't chase that here. That's not his purpose in this text. He simply wants the Thessalonians to know this, and we need to know this, that when Jesus returns, believers who have died will not be left behind while those who are alive are taken home to be with the Lord. That's not the way it's going to happen. Those who are alive when Christ returns will not precede those who have fallen asleep. This is what will happen. Verse 16, The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Is He going to sneak in? Not at all. And by the way, this trumpet sounds not a, not a tune. It's probably just the sound of a trumpet, like a military call. But He is going to announce Himself with great authority that He has returned, verse 16, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Two things will happen. Number one, the dead in Christ will rise. They will be resurrected from the dead as Christ returns. The dead in Christ may refer to all believers of all time. Some would take it that way. But I think in the writings of Paul, this would be most unlikely. The dead in Christ, the in Christ phrase is such a significant theological concept of Paul, it's difficult to think that he would use that idea here of all believers of all time. Undoubtedly, Old Testament believers were saved on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection. There wasn't a conscious knowledge of that uh, that was developed but certainly that is the the basis of their salvation. Having said that, it seems that he's being pointed here when he says the dead in Christ will rise first. That is, Jesus descends from heaven. The bodies of all the people who died in union with Christ through belief in the Gospel will be raised and reunited with their spirits. Their bodies will rise from the dead. We have laid to rest in this assembly members whose bodies now are in the earth. We have undoubtedly all lost loved ones who have died in Christ. Here is our hope. It's not based on simply what happened as they lived, but now on what will happen in the future. Here is our hope. Their bodies will be raised from the dead. They will come to life. Their bodies will be transformed, once again animated by their spirit, which is conscious and in the presence of God now, as they are in Christ. So it may be, as we go back to phrase 14, the phrase in verse 14, that God will bring with Him the spirits of those who have fallen asleep in Christ, and their bodies will be reunited with their spirit at the coming of Christ. A second thing will happen, which we find described in verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, with these resurrected believers, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. 
Then we who are alive. Much is made of the fact that Paul speaks as if he was going to be alive when Christ returns. And there's critics would, would jump on this and say, see, Paul thought Jesus would return in his lifetime. He didn't. He was wrong. There's others who would not be so critical of the matter, but just say Paul changed his mind. He came to a greater realization that he wouldn't be here. But I, I think way too much is made out of this. And I'd like to steer us as a church away from this idea. You can only refer to yourself as dead or alive. You've only got two options. So if you're alive, how are you going to refer to yourself? You're going to refer to yourself as those who are alive at the coming of Christ. Paul was very aware that he might die, and there's numerous evidences in the epistles of this fact. I won't quote them all here. But in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 14, he anticipates his own death and resurrection from the grave. Now having said that, Paul's just simply identifying with those alive because it would be presumptuous for him to think that he's going to die before Jesus comes. But having said that, I ask this question, why would Paul speak this way if he believed Christ's return would be after the millennium? Why would he say, we who are alive? The possibility is there, it would seem, that he will be alive when Christ returns. So Paul is not saying, Christ will never come back in my lifetime because the millennium has just begun. He clearly believed Christ was free to return in his lifetime. That's his theology. But the point here is not that, and we won't get mixed up in that. I, I hope to come back to some more of these details of millennium tribulation and return of Christ next week. But the point here is that those who have died in Christ will not be left behind. Jesus will return in triumph. The dead will be raised and living believers will join the resurrected believers in meeting Christ in the air. They will be caught up. That Greek phrase translated here, caught up, is translated by the Latin raptus. This is where we get the term rapture, the catching up of believers at Christ's return. The purpose of this catching up and the timing of it, again, we won't chase here, but any biblical believer deals with this issue of the catching up of believers to Christ. To meet the Lord. Connect that with verse 15 and the word coming. There will be a coming of Christ, and the believers will meet the Lord in the air. Now, if you're living in that world, there's one thing you're thinking here with those phrases. The coming of the King announced with this trumpet. And the meeting of this King as He comes. There's one thing that you're thinking in all of this. And that is, in the background of that day, a governor of the province, or perhaps even the emperor himself, would come to your city and as that emperor came to visit the city, it was very common for a delegation to go out from the city to meet the emperor somewhere on the road and then to welcome him back to the city. With great fanfare and rejoicing, people lining the streets to celebrate this emperor coming and everybody hoping that he'll give them some money and support and all that they want as he comes along the way. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus tells of the return of Emperor Vespasian in A.D. 66. And he describes it there as people going out to meet the emperor because they simply were too anxious to wait for him to come to them. 
And maybe there's some sort of sense in that of behind this tradition that it's sort of indicated to the person coming, we are so excited to see you come, we can't even wait till you get to the city. This is something of the cultural background, but I would caution, I think it's unwise for us to take that cultural background and read it into the eschatology of end times. Some, for instance, would say because of this background culturally, it means that Jesus will catch up the believers who then usher Him immediately back to earth. In other words, there is a post-tribulational rapture. I think that's allowing the culture to overwhelm the theology of the passage. There are better ways to support the post-tribulational rapture for those that would hold that view than this background. But getting back to the point at hand, this will be a time of great triumph and celebration. As Christ announces His return, as the dead in Christ are raised, imagine that, what that would be like to be alive and to witness this. What Paul is saying is the people who are dead in Christ are not going to miss the party. They're not going to miss the celebration. They're going to be there with you. In fact, they're going to precede you. You won't precede them, but in some sense, you're going to join with them as you go to meet Christ. So what's the point? Verse 18, Therefore encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. This passage was not written for many of the reasons that people believe it was written, or at least how they use it. It was written that the body of Christ would encourage itself in the facts of the Gospel. It was written that we would build one another up in the faith, that we would encourage each other in the loss of members who have died. Think of it. Concentrate on it. Know this revelation and rejoice in what will come. You will rise. You will meet the Lord in the air with these who have been resurrected. This passage was not written to encourage people to write speculative novels about end times. It's not its purpose. It was not written to detail the relationship of the rapture, the tribulation, and the millennium as important as that consideration is. It certainly was not written to encourage date-setters to speculate on the day of Christ's return. Remember the environment, the nest of this teaching is to encourage these grieving believers to grieve with hope. Not to speculate when Jesus is going to come. There's many who have done this through the years, through the centuries, and in our own land 1843, William Miller of Philadelphia predicted the return of Christ, but Jesus didn't come. For reasons unknown, he revised the date to October 22, 1844, and millennial fever took hold. Why this time and not the time before, I'm not sure, but as the day approached, people were said to get dressed in ascension robes, ready for Jesus to come back on October the 22nd. On that day, Miller's followers fled Philadelphia for a hill outside of the city. And the reports say that some of them actually climbed into the trees on the hill. Apparently wanted to be first in line when Jesus came back. It was all a false alarm. And we remember it today with a smirk 
Well, that's stuff that happened back in the 1800s. doesn't happen today, right? No, who would set dates today about Christ coming? Well, I remember right where I was standing in a parking lot in 1988 when I saw Edgar Wisenot's book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come Back in 1988. It was one of the rare events in which I was on the street and someone was trying to evangelize me. Uh, so I, I, I looked at this book. After, after one failed date, Wisenot set the time at 10.55 a.m. September 15, 1988. That date also failed. And then he came up with 89 reasons why Christ would come in 1989. That book was then revised year after year after year that Jesus will come this year. Isn't in any better place than anybody else who's just waiting for Jesus to come? Well, it wasn't long ago, was it? Harold Camping, family radio personality, predicting that Jesus would return on May the 21st, 2011. An earlier date of September 6, 1994 had missed the mark, but I think one of the reasons, I'd never heard of that one, did you? The 1994 prediction? I'd never heard of it. I think one of the reasons this year caught everybody's attention was because of the money poured into advertising. One man in particular dropped 140000 he didn't figure he needed, on advertisements, a thousand posters on New York City subways and bus shelters. That gets some attention. There were uh, all kinds of things that were uh, devised to promote this day, to alert people to it. May 21st, 2011, Jesus did not come on cue. In fact, I figure when people set the dates, that's, I, I, use, I don't want to tell God what He's going to do. I don't want to ever get anywhere close to that. But I always figure if somebody's predicting that date, that's a day you can be pretty sure Jesus won't come. I was much more thinking about May the 20th because nobody was expecting that one. This is just ridiculous. But I bring this up because there's a lot of people where date setting and reading the tea leaves of world events becomes their life. And I say this by way of warning. We need to be very cautious here that we don't take what God has revealed about end times and turn it into some sort of hobby. This has happened. Got to come now. This has happened. The end's got to be closer. Well, no kidding, the end's closer. Every breath you take, the end's closer. But what happens is that people get down off on a rabbit trail of trying to figure out when Jesus is coming and they never come back to the main road. Their Christian life gets overwhelmed by trying to figure out when, when the whole point is not when... The whole point is to be ready. The whole point here is that in the resurrection of Christ, we have encouragement to hope in our union with the risen Christ is our joy and privilege. It's members encouraging members in the face of something as serious and as real as death. What we learn in this passage is that hope in the face of death is rooted in our knowledge of what God has revealed. 
Now, grab on to that. Don't let that thought fly by too quickly. We're dealing here with just one area of our Christian life, but this is true of every area of our Christian life. The resurrection of Christ is crucially important to everything that we do and think. But here it is, the truth that is revealed is what gives us hope in the midst of death. Truth sets us free. Hope we learn here, is rooted ultimately in the Gospel, in the victory of Christ over death. What is it that distinguishes, we just put a point on it, what distinguishes grief with hope and grief without hope? It's the Gospel. But to think of it a bit further here, it's the fact that there's a future. That's the thing that's missing. When you witness the death of a loved one, whether that's in a tragic moment of time, or whether that's over many years as disease takes over. When you watch the death of a loved one, what fills that grief with hope is that there's something to come. Those who have no relationship through Christ in His death and resurrection have no future. There's no confidence of what comes next. We have guesses. We think this or that. We like to convince ourselves that this might be the case. There's no knowledge. But here we have the revelation of God that fits us with hope there is a future. And as much as you trust the death and resurrection of Christ for your salvation, just as much you can trust that the dead will rise again. That those that we have lost in this world to death who are in Christ, we will join with them. I can have absolute confidence in that. And that changes everything. This knowledge of the Gospel must become more, however, than an intellectual knowledge of facts. The Gospel involves entering into a relationship with God by trusting in His death and resurrection. So it's not good enough to just get my, my ideas in line here. Jesus will come back, there will be an announcement of the trumpet, and then the dead in Christ will rise and those who are alive will come. And I know all these things. I've got to be related to the God who makes these promises. And that may be missing somebody here today. You may in fact be running through your mind this, the relationship of all of these things and say, I think, I got it in, I think I've got it now. I think I've got the order the way things... And you don't know Christ. He's not your Savior. You just know about Him. That would be tragic. And in the day of deep grief and in the day that you meet Christ, you'll find it wasn't sufficient just to know the order of end time events. You've got to know the Savior. You must come to the place where you realize that you are born into a state of rebellion against God. And though you may not shake your fist in His face time and time again, you violate His law. You break His desires. And you break His heart. But it's what we find here in verse 14 that is our hope. To believe that Jesus died. Now don't go there in your mind and say, well I know that fact. Jesus' death substitutes for the sinner. Jesus pays the penalty of sin for the sinner. 
and He rose again. There is the victory, the defeat of death and Satan and sin. There's where our salvation is grounded. This is what makes His death accomplish the forgiveness of sin. He rises in victory over death. We must come to embrace that message, trust in that message, and walk in faithfulness to it. So there's the revelation that gives us hope. There's the relationship with Christ that makes that hope alive. We need this desperately. And you might say, well, why? We're not at a funeral here, are we? We will be. Barring the return of Christ, as He continues to give us life, we will be. This church will be at another funeral. Today, what God is mercifully doing to us is to equip us and to root our theology deep into the soil of His revelation. We're going to need this. When death visits us again, we are only left to draw upon what we know and what we believe, what we trust. We are left to rely upon what the Bible reveals. There's a day when you will die. There's a day when I will die. Unless Jesus returns first, death is part of our experience. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes all the difference for those who have been redeemed. It allows us to grieve with hope. Death does not snuff out our existence. It does not conquer us. Death has been dealt a death blow. The stinger of the scorpion of death has been removed So when we face this foe again, let's let these roots deepen us and stabilize us. So that when we face this foe again, we will stand in the power of the cross. We will stand united to Christ's victory. And though we grieve, by God's grace, we will grieve always with hope. And though we grieve, we will be able to write and to speak words of encouragement to one another. To remember the words of God. To remember His revelation. And to know that we'll never grieve without a future. We will grieve with confidence that Jesus in the past has defeated death and that Jesus will continue to bring this victory in the future. We will grieve with that hope. Because as our gathering today reminds us, Jesus Christ is risen. And that changes everything. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we thank You for this revelation. Who are we to deserve the knowledge of such glories? We put these truths to the test as a church as we have seen members of this assembly die. God, as that pain somewhat dissipates over the years, we thank You that it may not simply because we forget, not at all because we forget, but because our confidence and our hope 
just continues to grow. We put our confidence and our faith that those who have gone before us, we will see them again. They are conscious in Your presence today, knowing joys that we can only begin to imagine. That we thank You that we are body and spirit. And that one day You will unite spirit and body of all those who are in Christ, indeed of all people, for judgment or for glorification. But we pause here to be before You thankful and being reminded that Your revelation changes everything. And we ask that You will help us to root our lives in the resurrection of Christ. To know what it means to be united to His death and to His resurrection and to live out that life faithfully. I pray that we would be honest with sin. That You would help us to confess our sin. I pray that You would aid us to find hope and encouragement in Your words. And where we grieve, to grieve with hope. Deepen us and prepare us for this, we pray. May this message and this revelation have sanctifying effect, we ask. And in the life of anyone who knows not Christ as Savior, pray that they'd be ready to die. And that they'd know how to grieve. Open their eyes to the transforming power and to the saving power grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.